Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Emmett, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, Sean. Thanks for having me. Yeah, great to be here. I've listened to a few of your episodes now and uh, really like the people you pick and hopefully uh, you chose wisely with me. <laughs> I think I did. I think I did. Yeah, we, uh, we we cover a lot of depth and variety on the show and certainly uh, financial and, and investing is certainly one thing that I'm passionate about. I think we were talking before the show Legally, we need to have some disclaimers about the yeah, whatever, discussions. Yes. Yeah, whatever we say on here is not to be interpreted as investment advice. You know, this is just our own thoughts about, you know, stocks or investing. Everyone should be responsible for their own investment decision making. We're not investment advisors in any way, shape, or form. Yeah. Important to say this is simply a discussion amongst two people. You can do your own research. Um, important to say that beforehand, of course. So, um, I, I wanted to, I wanted to bring you on. I was fascinated by your, your story about how you've, you know, risen to success with, you know, obviously you've been at this for many years, but, um, I was really fascinated. One of the things that really caught my eye was how you took your IRA from 2000 $700 $700 initially to 29 million. Is that, is that correct? Yeah. 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 It's, it's correct. Yes. It's uh it's pretty wild when I think about it too. And uh, I think um, I went over it with a friend on like a monthly and annual basis. And it went from like 2,700 up to like 500,000 in the first, and this is over a 10 year period. It went up to, 2,700 to 500,000 in the first like four years. And then after that, it dwindled down back down to like 30,000, all the way down to $30,000 <laughs> in, in the next few years. Yeah. So I went from 500,000 down to $30,000, which is still 10 times more than the original, but still it's like, it was heartbreaking. But then it went up in, in the last uh, two years from $30,000 to like 30 million. Yeah. Pretty crazy. So why did it go down? How did it go down from five hundred thousand to thirty thousand? What what happened within that time frame? Yeah. So this IRA account was not my, even though it's called individual retirement, you know, account for, and it's implied that's for your savings. I didn't treat it as my savings. People shouldn't do the type of investments I did in my IRA in their savings account, like their investment savings. You know, this was kind of a side pot of money that I was just playing around with, you know, sort of gambling, I guess you could say, but, you know, with information I thought I had an advantage on with regards to Tesla in particular. And so, um, you know, I had my own work stock-based plan, my work 401k plan. Those were my savings accounts and those, you know, were, were my future. You know, this IRA account that I had started with, you know, almost $3,000, I kind of treat it as like an experiment, you know? And so I didn't contribute any more money this whole time to it. And uh, it's just been using my experimental investing, you know, philosophy in it where I use a lot of call options and Tesla I've known for a long time has been kind of this generational company in my mind um, that I, I think, you know, has a real chance of being the largest company in the world, you know, um, yep. by the end of this decade, you know, and, and, and so for a long time, early on, um, you know, I think it was uh, in 2010 or 11 when I first discovered them, they were in like a two or three billion market cap. Uh, and market cap for anyone who doesn't, you know, we all trade on stock prices. Um, we, we reference stock prices. And in my mind, stock prices are almost meaningless. You know, um, Sean, do you, you know what a market cap is? Do you want to? Yep. Market capitalization. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the market capitalization is the number of shares that are outstanding to the public times the market stock price. 
right? So one company might issue a million shares to the public, another company might issue 10 million shares to the public, another company might issue 100 million shares to the public or 50 million or whatever. That's sort of, you know, that's their decision how many shares they want to issue. The stock price times those amount of shares is equal to the market capitalization of the company, right? So when I think of stocks, that's one thing I think I've noticed, which is so simple. Everyone knows this at the top of their head, but very few people, I think, keep this at the top of their mind whenever they're looking at stock prices. When I look at stock prices, it's almost meaningless to me. I want to know the market cap. Like, what's the market cap this thing is trading at, right? And Tesla was trading, you know, the stock price was like 20 to $40. This is way before the split in 2010-11. It's like in a range of 20 to $30 pre-split. And that market cap was like $2 billion or something like that of the company. And I was like, and this is like right when they were, the Model S was kind of early. It wasn't even in production just yet. They were just kind of shopping it around as a prototype. But when I saw it as a prototype in 2010, I was like, wow, this is the future. I just knew, you know, and I, I started studying Elon Musk and I was like, man, this, this guy's a real deal. You know, like he's done a lot of things, you know, with PayPal previously and started SpaceX and, before all that, he did something crazy and sold like the first like, you know, MapQuest thing in the yellow pages, you know, yeah. um, it's a very fascinating story, fascinating guy. And I just had a feeling that this, this car could be like the next big thing and the market cap should be like 20 or 30 billion, I thought. So the stock price should have been 10 times higher, I thought, mm. if the mark, if the car was produced and sold, you know, it was just still a prototype at that time. And so I started loading up on these call options of Tesla and my IRA account. But I did, I'm careful with this experimental trading not to put all my eggs in one basket. Like even though all my eggs are technically in Tesla with the IRA for the most part, I realized like I can't, you know, the call options, the furthest time you can go out is like a year or two years out. Could you explain just call, for people that don't know what a yeah. call option is, just, just a very in, in layman terms, what it is? Yes, yes, I should have explained that too. So a call option is a, is, is a, exchange traded derivative of the stock and basically what it is is the right but not the obligation to buy the stock at a certain price by a certain time so it's a lot of little variables mixed into one contract um, that you're buying or selling some people sell call options like this you know some people buy call options and then there's market makers who are have the job of making markets and call options. So there's always a bid and an offer in the, any call option that you know is on the exchanges, the options exchanges. Got it. And so, so Tesla, just as an example, Tesla was trading around twenty five dollars, and I was buying call options to buy the stock at forty dollars. Um, so even though it's trading at twenty five dollars, I think this stock's going to go like a hundred dollars or two hundred dollars, right? And so I'm buying for $1 was the cost of the call option, let's say, mm. to buy one share of Tesla at $40 within a year. So someone sold me that. Someone thinks that a market maker or someone selling call options thinks, oh, Tesla's not going over $40 in the next year. I'll sell you that option for a dollar and collect that money myself and keep it as long as Tesla doesn't go over $40, right? But I'm on the other side. I'm saying, no, I think Tesla could go way above $40. And I'm going to pay a dollar for that option. So when Tesla goes to $100, for example, I could buy a share for $40 and immediately turn around and sell to it for 100 X. for $60. Yeah. yeah, for a $60 profit. No, $60 on $1 because I paid $1 for that. Mm. So I made a 60x profit on that. Crazy. I did that. Does that make sense? Definitely. So you can use these, these options for extreme price movements to make enormous sums of money if you can spot them. Now, what happens and that's if sort of what you, I practiced, yeah. definitely, yeah. And what happens if in a year that in some cases that the price did not go over the $40, what would happen in that case? Then I lose my dollar entirely that I paid for that call option. It expires worthless because there's an ex expiry time on that contract. Maybe it's like January of 2011, January 18th. It's like the third Friday of the calendar month or something. So... It would expire worthless. I'd lose my dollar forever that I paid for it. And the person who sold it to me gets to keep that dollar forever, right? So I just lost a dollar, you know. But I did this, you know, every option contract has a multiplier of 100, which means it represents 100 shares. 
Mm. So you don't do it for just one share, you do it for 100 shares. So when you buy like 10 call option contracts, you're really buying that right or that option for 1,000 shares, right? Right. It's 10 times 100,000 shares. So I was buying, so in my IRA, maybe I close, you know, $2,900. I was kind of experimenting, not just with Tesla, I was trying it with Apple and different, you know, buying call options. If you time it at the right time, you can make 5X or 10X your money. Um, and uh, I lost a lot of those bets, right? But I made a couple and and the first time around on Tesla, I lost the options expired worthless in 2000, January or 2011 or 2012, I can't remember. But I was still determined because I'd been researching Tesla and I'd been, you know, vigorously like searching for it on, on the internet and articles back then like you search for it on twitter and you'd never find anything new like it'd be like once a week you'd see oh someone tweeted about tesla what'd they say you know, like, <laughs> you know once a week maybe you know or maybe wow. once a month you see an article and you'd be like oh there's some article about tesla and i had a friend of mine that we were both in it together and so we talked to each other about it which helped well and, this um, was elon musk even ceo at that time wasn't he just an investor at that beginnings no, I, I think in 2000, you know, before 2000, like in 2006 or something he was, but I think by the time they went public in 2008 or 2009, I think he was CEO by then. Yeah. Mm, yeah. So, um, yeah. So, so, uh, I'd been buying these call options. I found a forum online that there was other people, you know, like me and my friend Tesla Motors Club forums and just like some kind of like geeky people like me just like nerding out on tesla and tesla mm. stock and the tesla cars and everything we we learned everything we could possibly and i was building conviction you know and sure. so i was able to kind of re-up my bet after the first call options expired worthless and the second time um i think they expired you know it, they didn't expire they, they that's when the stock started running up from 30 dollars to like 200 dollars a share mm. in 2013 2014. now what is it that you saw in tesla in particular uh, in terms of the data points or the criteria, like what was it that you have used for Tesla that perhaps other people can transfer over to other investments uh, that gave you so much conviction to be able to take the risks that you did? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. So I think the first thing I saw was my own experience of testing the prototype, you know, just the interface. I didn't test drive it, but when I went to like a local department store in 2010, when I first saw it, and I saw the prototype of the Model S, it looked like an amazing car from the outside. But then when I sat inside, I saw that huge touch screen mm -hmm. and I was playing with it. And it was like, so react. It was just like the software was like incredible. Like you wouldn't expect software in a car, you know, mm -hmm. like it was like an Apple iPhone type experience, you know, like the only time I felt that kind of experience before was the first time I, played with an Apple iPhone, you know, and then it kind of clicked at me. And I was like, Oh, I didn't buy Apple stock. I knew, you know, looking back, oh, I should have bought Apple stock in 2007 right. or six or eight or whatever, but I never did. And so I kind of carried that forward and I was like, this is like an iPhone moment, you know, for cars, you know, and this is going to be big. And so I started researching it, it kind of got perked my curiosity. And as I researched it, um, the founder, that's very important. I think if you research a company or a product, you want to know about the founder. And I think Elon isn't technically the founder, but he really is the founder. There's like a weird, you know, has a weird backstory, but he's really the founder of the Tesla we know. You know, right. there was a Tesla of the old that, you know, he wasn't technically the founder. But when he took it over, he had to like revamp the whole company and rebuild it basically and put his own money into it. And, and um, so he's chairman, CEO, founder in my mind. And he's, as I researched him, I realized he's got incredible vision. I would look at his interviews, I'd listen to him talk, and I just saw that he sees the world differently than most, you know? And I've been told that about me, is like maybe I see the world differently than other people. And, you know, someone might talk about something in a certain way, and then I'll tell my wife, like, does that mean that? And she's like, no, this means this. And, um, and I, I interpreted it a completely different meaning to what they're saying, which might also be partially true, but it's just unusual that I interpret it a certain way, whereas other people, interpret or something you know i don't know so elon i kind of noticed that in him he sees the world differently but the way he sees it just seems to be more truthful in many ways in my opinion mm -hmm. and so he's also very like you know had a, a huge track record of success and he understands what he's talking about whenever he's talking about the chemistry of batteries or physics or space you know he's a rocket scientist you know he's like he's just this incredibly 
smart person that's an engineer, like the smartest engineer of our time. And I started realizing that early, like this guy is like Henry Ford and Thomas Edison and Albert Einstein rolled into one even better, you know? Mm. And so my faith was as, as much in the product and the company as it was with the founder, you know, Elon Musk. And, and so those are my data points, I guess. And, and I really wanted to test drive the car, right? That was my next big thing. Like I got to test drive this product. You know, I can't just play with the interface. I got to test drive it. So, so um, at the time I didn't have a lot of money. I couldn't even afford a Tesla. That's for sure. I, you know, had a job that was paying, you know, 50,000 or 60 or 70,000 a year in like the New York metropolitan area. What were you and, doing uh, before, before all this? Yeah, I was working at interactive brokers. Okay. Um, which is an electronic brokerage firm. And I had just started a sales job, I think in 2010. I was before that I was in like client support from 2006 to 2010. And then 2010, I started a sales role for like institutional prime brokerage sales or hedge fund sales for wow. interactive brokers. So you didn't have like an analytical yeah. or technical financial background per se. Like you didn't work for like, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I wasn't an analyst, you know, I was more like my clients actually though, you know, the thing about working in the support desk um, was that the, the institutional support desk was that the clients were like a lot of times these small hedge fund managers, you know, hedge fund managers starting with their own money that they left, you know, a billion dollar hedge fund as an analyst with $10 million and are starting their own hedge fund or Goldman Sachs executive leaving with a few million bucks and a few investors start their own hedge fund, but they're like a one man shop and they do everything and they have to learn how to trade themselves electronically now. And so they're calling me for help and they're explaining their like investment thesis to me or their investment strategy to me while I have to translate it into them on the best tools of our platform to use to put those trades on. So I learned a little bit through osmosis that way. I'm not, I'm not, I didn't, I just learned the diversity of investment philosophies that way i would say from volatility trading to long short equity to arbitrage special situations corporate action stuff to you know i learned all these different little bit of of a lot of different strategies yeah you know in a few years there and enough to get like a bigger picture i feel like that helped me um and uh so it gave me some understanding but i i you know it's definitely not a classical investment uh background as most you know best and hedge fund managers have uh and such um, which is even more fascinating yeah. of the, of a story that you you didn't have this edge or even peers that you could surround yourself with around this and you kind of just had to self-educate yourself i imagine even though it wasn't mm -hmm. you know you kind of had bits and pieces from people that you were working with as clients but I imagine that sparked that interest in you to really dig deep into the different strategies and, and you, in the end, you kind of self-educated yourself in that, in that sense. No, absolutely. And what I witnessed, you know, is that it's sort of like when you're a kid and you find out Santa Claus isn't real, like these <laughs> brilliant minds of like, you know, MIT rocket scientists starting their own hedge fund or, you know, quantitative strategies that are like these formulas that are back tested to the moon and have been super profitable and they're determined they're They think they're going to win, tons of money in the market from the market and blah, blah, blah. What I learned is that almost none of these, you know, almost all of these investment strategies fail, you know, like no matter how smart these people are and no matter how, how brilliant it sounds, their investment plan over the long run, they almost all do not outperform the market. That's in P 500, you know? Um, and so that was kind of like, in a way, like when I say finding out Santa Claus isn't really like, like, thinking to myself, like, wait, so no matter how hard I try, I'm probably not going to get a better return than the S&P 500. And I should just put my money in the S&P 500 index fund. Mm -hmm. And I was like, that's for a while. I told all my friends and family because they'd all ask me, they thought like I work with my parents, be like, oh, just put your money in SPY, that ticker, you'll do better. And a lot of them did and they did better. <laughs> and so, but, th but then I did find some outliers and the outliers um, most often had, you know, uh, you know, uh, being in sales and hedge funds, I helped hundreds of startup hedge fund managers over the 10 years I was there, like start their hedge funds. And most of them fail over a few years and some succeed and some hang on. But the few outlier and the few outliers I found the things in common, I was able to kind of blend together a little bit and just learn lessons from without my own 
losses. One thing was like some of the most successful investors are the buy and hold guys, the boring buy and hold. You mm. buy and hold these like generational stocks. You just hold on to them. You don't try to do anything fancy. You just sit on sit on them forever. <laughs> and if you buy a few like apples and Netflix, or you, you pick one or two of those in a portfolio of five or 10 stocks, you're going to beat the market over the long term. That's all you have to do. It's boring, but that's that's true. You find a gen- so in my mind, I'm thinking of oh, Tesla's this generational stock and I should just concentrate everything in Tesla. So instead of diversifying, which a lot of people talk about, I was concentrated like in my personal trading account, like separate from my 401k and my stock savings plan with the company and Rector Brokers. I've been on personal savings accounts. I've been kind of grooming and I pretty much focused almost all of it into Tesla for mm-hmm. most of the last 10 years. Like that's 95%. what those guys were doing as well. They weren't diversifying too much. It was four or five stocks and, and majority of their portfolio into those stocks. Yeah. So if those guys, you know, the people that bought and hold, and as long as they had a few generational stocks within their basket, you know, most of them wouldn't diversify to that. Ext- I mean, concentrate to the extreme. I was doing it. They were, they would, you know, uh, have a basket of, you know, five or 10 or 20 stocks or whatever, but you know, not doing anything fancy. They're not trying to trade in and out of them. They're not trying to time earnings. They're just kind of holding through, you know, thick and thin, just holding on to these long-term stock positions. Mm-hmm. And a few of them worked out to be huge winners that, you know, ha- helped their performance drastically. And now they're like growing their fund or their investment management business. And another thing I saw was early on, one of my hedge fund clients, and this planted a seed for some of my call option ideas, I think was, I remember seeing a hedge fund client of mine start with like, you know, 2 million bucks, you know, 3 million bucks. And, and uh, he grew to like 10 or $20 million in like a few months. And I was like, whoa, like it wasn't investors, just like his own performance. And I would like ask the, you know, he was working with our block trading desk or options block trading desk. And I, you know, we'd talk with your, you know, as a salesperson, I'd talk with the different departments in our company, see how we could better service this guy's hot, you know, he's generating a lot of commissions, hot client, let's help him grow his business, you know? Yeah. And it turns out he was buying a ton of leads like, call options on suppliers of Apple and Apple stock options. Like at some of the Apple movements and suppliers of Apple, you know, in 2010 to 2012 or whatever. And um, so he would like buy like a ton of these option contract, call option contracts on like an Apple supplier. They have their earnings or something just over a month or two that stock would go up like 30%, but his option contract would go up like 500%, you know, because wow. it was like a three month call option expiry, you know? And so I just saw like the seeds of like what I could do if I timed some call options the right way, you know, you could really get an exponential return in certain cases, you know, it's very risky. You have to be prepared to lose it, you know, and that's why I kept that trading bucket completely separate from my retirement savings. You know, that's what's important here is like, I was able to segregate that in my head. Like I have my really high risk gambling investment trading account that if it goes to zero, I'm still going to be fine. And then I have my savings account, which is much more diversified and conventional conservative that I'll still sure. retire at 60, you know, no, no worries if, if uh, that other account goes to zero. What was your portfolio allocation of risky, uh, you know, of your risky portfolio to more of the safer diversified? Was it like 80% safe, 20% risky? Did you use like the barbell strategy that Nicholas, uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb, talks about yeah so the, the my strategy of this risky account or of the uh, uh, so basically the way i looked at it was i need to live to trade another day like i didn't want to lose all that money on one bet you know even though i'm yeah. so concentrated on tesla you know like i want to have some Tesla stock after that last, after that run up in 2014, I'm holding on to a lot of stock, but I'm also investing into Tesla options periodically every year or two. I'm kind of closing out my options for a loss and buying new options that are another one or two years out. And so I kept doing it every year. I thought it was going to go up, but from 2014 to 2019, <laughs> it didn't. Right. Yeah. And yeah. I was losing money. And that's the time. That's the period where my IRA account went from 500,000, down to 30,000. Oh I'd been That's... slowly losing it along that period of time. And I had a personal trading account at the same time that went up to like 2 million in 2014, but then that dwindled down to like 500,000 or 400,000. That was my like 
play money that wasn't the IRA account, you know, and that started at $30,000. The IRA started at 3000, the personal kind of play money trading account started at $30,000 in 2011 or whatever. So those are the two main accounts I was kind of playing with. One was, you know, tax, you know, you you don't have to pay taxes on any gains and you have the IRA account until you withdraw it down the road. But the other account, you you kind of play a little differently with taxes. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, from 2014 to 2019, I had to really, I was really studying hard my conviction on Tesla. Like, you know, I was owning the products myself, driving, getting all the newest cars, even though I couldn't really afford, you know, I'm like, I have three kids there. They're young kids there. I'm debating whether we should put them in public or private school or spend the money on a new Tesla, you know, did you lease it <laughs> you know, at least? Like, no, well, we did lease it. Yeah. Yeah. We leased, yeah. um, we did lease it. Yeah. And, but it was still expensive. It was like $1,500 a month for the lease God. for the performance signature model X that we ended up getting, you know, cause I wanted yeah. to have the latest model, this model X. I wanted to make sure it was like the top end technology that I thought it would be to keep my conviction on Tesla, you know? And, um, we ended up doing both, but it was a little risky and stressful for a while. And uh, I got the first one of the first people in in the Bay Area to get the Tesla solar roof on my house, you know, and that was expensive at the time. That was in 2018 or 19. Um, but as that each time I got the Tesla product, it proved my conviction like, hey, this product is incredible. Like it's mm. so seamless to use. I do think this is the future. And I would test competitors and like my thesis was like if I could test personally a, comp- a competitive product that I thought was on similar, a similar experiential level to Tesla's, whether it was an electric car or the solar roof experience with the app and just how it looks nice in your house or whatever with the Powerwall generator, all seamlessly integrated into your phone app. You know, if I could test something else that was similar, then I'd start thinking, okay, maybe I should trim my Tesla positions and, you know, have conviction in something else. You know, it's not as, the, the time it might not be the top product or service in that area for at, at some point soon, but I still to debt to this day I can't I, I haven't tested anything that seems comparable. I mean, there's so much talk. There's been so much talk about Tesla killers here and there. Yeah, it's 2012 when the Model S came out. You know, Volkswagen, Audi, Porsche, they're all going to come out. This, you know, not, none of this stuff has materialized. Now you have Lucid and you know Apple. You know, I think yeah, the biggest competitors yeah. might be like. Xpeng and Neo and Lee Automotive from China, but they're going to focus in China for a while. And who knows if they'll expand outside. Yeah. So what's interesting about your conviction with Tesla is that most of the people that with some sort of a financial background, they think certainly more analytical and they, you know, if you're talking about the Warren Buffetts of the world, they're, they're, they're talking about you know, the, the, the P and E ratio, they're talking about like the amount of cash on hand. They're talking about, you know, how, how safe it is in certain yeah. sense. And they're talking about competitive modes, right? And it's, it's certainly a refreshing look at having someone like yourself that doesn't have like a, you know, uh, I guess a, a technical or analytical background in that, in the financial sense from like a professional perspective. Mm-hmm. And it was really more just like this long-term end goal vision of the thinking really big. Like you're thinking not 20% gains or 30% gains, which a lot of these short-term day traders were thinking about. You're thinking like a hundred X gain, which really makes you reframe your thinking completely. Like one of my favorite quotes by Peter Thiel, who founded PayPal, I guess with with, uh, Elon Musk, is like, how can you achieve your six-month goal Sorry, it's ten-year goal in six mm-hmm. months, and the interesting thing about that is not necessarily the right the, the answer, but it's the perspective in it's a, it's a shift in your perspective. Like you have to com- think a completely different way, and oftentimes what mm-hmm. you're doing and the way you think, you just need to throw that out because you need a completely different way to think about it. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, it seems like you weren't even you weren't even thinking too much about the numbers. Obviously the numbers matter like the market cap, but you were thinking more about the end vision. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think you're absolutely right. It's two things. Like I was thinking hundred X, but only because I had the opportunity to think that way. You know, mm-hmm. that, and the way, the reason I say that is because the opportunity was, you know, I also saw something with Bitcoin. I got into Bitcoin in 2011 I bought some, that's had a huge return. Um, and I just held on to that. But uh, Tesla, um, when I saw that, 
I could see a few years out, this Model X is going to be a big seller in the luxury EV market. Like it's going to be a major player and it's going to have a huge brand. It's going to, people are going to talk about it. It's going to be a 30 billion market cap company, I think. And it's 2 billion now. How do I maximize my winnings? Like when you play poker, right? If you play no limit poker, if you, if you know you have the best hand and you're dealt like on the flop, like let's say you, you, know, you got like some four of a kind on the flop and you know you have the best hand, how do you maximize that, you know, with the other people in there? Like some of it's luck, right? You have, have some people that think they have a good hand too, but then you also have to slow play your hand a little bit maybe, or maybe you don't, I don't know, but you have to figure out how to maximize your winnings. You don't want to just scare everyone. You just want to, you don't want to just get a little bit of money. You want to try to maximize and double up your pot, you know, or more, right. you know? And so that's the type of thinking I had with, this Tesla vision and conviction is like, how do I maximize it? Call options. And how do I use these call options to get me the most possible money out of this, you know, end result that I envision, you know? And so then in 2014, after, you know, I started thinking the same thing, it's a 30 or $50 billion. It was trading in like 300 to $450 or $250 or $200 to $400 range, which is like a 30 to 50 billion market cap for years. But in 2000. 16, 17, 18, I was like, man, this Model 3, when it comes out and in full force, if it's like successful and then they have other products in the wings, you know, like this should be like a 300 billion market cap, should be 10 times even bigger than it is now, you know? So then I started positioning myself for more call options and I got better at it, right? From the first time around. And I started thinking, man, I got to buy more call options, you know, because I think this is going to be a 300 billion market cap company. Was that and your then, first time you know, buying call options with Tesla? You, you haven't bought it? In the past, yeah, you didn't at least not with. Yeah. I did it. With, I tried it with Apple a few times, 2010, 2011, and I did it with Facebook. Actually, I had a, like a nice 50x return on some Facebook call options. Um, I think 2012, 2016, or something like that. Uh, I, you know, turned it to deepen the money call options. Meaning, like, if you bought Tesla call options at forty dollars and they went up to hundred dollars, like the example we were talking about earlier. You don't have to sell the call option for that $60 profit. You can take assignment of the shares at the $40 cost basis, but the shares are worth $100. So it's like you hold the shares on margin, like you only paid $60 for them, you know, and $40 of it is on margin. So I did something similar with Facebook um, way back. So I've done it with some other things, but I've also failed with a number of names. And I'm trying to expand my investment philosophy across other names with similar call option things. But a lot of it's the timing of the market, you know, right now, as we've seen in the last week, you know, the market, the whole macro market interest rates are going up and, and all these growth stocks um, are, are taking a big hit right now. So like the, a, a good time to get these call options was, you know, right after the COVID crash, when I, I did that last year and, you know, I, I bought a bunch of put options right before the COVID crash and, and I bought put options in the NASDAQ index, you know, and um, so when the NASDAQ crashed 30% in, you know, a few weeks, on, you know, I made like 25x in a few weeks on that investment. It wasn't my whole portfolio, but it was like 10 or 10% of my portfolio at the time, which turned into a large gain on my account overall. I was trying to hedge my portfolio. But then I took those, when I cashed out on that, I took that gains and I bought, because that's when the market was at kind of its lows in the spring of 2020. I was able, I, I saw the market kind of stabilize. It wasn't going down lower. So I, I took those winnings and bought like square options and Peloton options and things like that, you know, that have panned out well. Um, but right now buying these long-term call options, it's a tough risk reward because the market's gone up so much in the last, mm -hmm. you know, nine months that I feel like, you know, you need the whole tide of the market going up, you know, to really profit on these call options, you know, um, and uh, it, it's hard to envision this tide of this market to continue rising like it has the last nine months for the next few months. You know, if anything, it seems to be fluttering and, you know, going down even. So is the best time to buy call options generally in like this first stage of a bull market or at least when the market is down to the point where you have pretty big conviction that it's going to go up or rebound? In, yeah. 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 I mean, optimally, the best time is you want to buy low, sell high, right? So you want to wait till the market goes down a lot, you know, and have some cash on hand and to buy stuff when the market goes down a lot. Um, you know, if you could do that, you're going to make a lot of money. If you buy low and sell high, that's how you, you make. And if you do it with call options, you make even more. 
Um, but there's always the question of like, what if it takes years to recover? Like after the dot-com crash, you know, it took years for the market to kind of recover. Even if you bought call options after that, you would have lost all your call option money because call options are typically at most one or two years out in sure. expiry. Sure. Um, so it's risky, the call option stuff, you know, and so you don't want to put all your money in call options. You want to save, you know, that that's my, my investment philosophy that I've been doing. Right. Um, and it's worked out uh, some years really incredibly and some years not. Got it. Now, in terms of education, because uh, you know, you've obviously self-educated yourself in terms of not only the technical things around how to do call options and so forth, but I imagine, you know, if you look at like Charlie Munger, he, he talks often about like the best investors aren't reading investment books, but they're studying philosophy, history, psychology. Um, what are some yeah. of the books that have influenced you the most uh, around decision-making or, or helping you become a better overall investor? Yeah. I mean, I think uh, Nassim Taleb, you referenced earlier, he has some great books, you know, Fooled by Randomness, The Black Swan, you know, and I'm not a big reader. I'm a very slow reader. So I listen to things. I listen to audio books. I've listened to, um, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I get them. I get a ton of information listening to podcasts now. And I like to listen to like influential thinkers interviewed on various podcasts, um, just to update my own perspectives. You know, the the more ways I can look, the more perspectives I can have on a certain situation, whether it's the Tesla Tesla investment thesis. Like I studied the Bear case very heavily. Like I wanted to understand every shorts for years. Tesla was like a favorite for the shorts. They kept demonizing, saying Elon Musk is a fraud. Tesla's going bankrupt all this stuff. And I studied that so closely because I wanted to understand mm. their perspective as well, you know, and as much as it pains me to under, to study the opposite side of things, it's so important for me to study the things that I don't believe in just to understand where it's coming from, you know? And if I can study all different sides of something, I feel like I have some type of better grasp. I have more information than most people who see things from one direction, you know? And so I can make maybe better decisions sometimes, you know, because of that. Um, I use social media a lot, like the coronavirus cr virus crash when that was coming last January, I was looking at citizen journalism on the ground. You know, there were some Twitter handles in China and, you know, at first it seemed like, oh, is this real or is this pretend? But then I saw the same kind of citizen journalism in Iran and Italy of what's going on on the ground and Corona stuck there. And I just built conviction like, this is like the real deal when it hits the U S hard in the next yeah. few weeks, it's going to panic the markets. And so I was like, I don't even know if this is real. It's going to kill all of humanity at that point. It was like freaky, you know? And so I was like, well, at least if I should protect my hedge, my, my, I should hedge my portfolios and buy some put options. So, you know, just you find, I find a bunch of trusted resources that people I trust and I use social media now to try to find a variety of, views and i look at all their views and i try to put it together to mix it up to see what i think is most true about a situation or or not you know yeah the thing that stands out to to me with what you just said is seeking information that from the other side of the other side of the table right it's human beings have such a huge confirmation bias that we're always seeking information that makes us feel good or that gives us you know uh, a confirmation of like what we already think. And it's only been escalated with social media algorithms of beating us content yeah. and data that, you know, our yeah. peers. And it's, it's, it's the reason why we live in such a bubble in, in many sense. Yeah. But yeah. It, it, it's, it's fascinating that you, you're, you've actually intentionally gone out to seek, uh, you know, the other side of the view around making sure that you, you know, you, I guess the idea is like you, you should be able to argue just as well in order to have an opinion you should be able to argue the other side just as well uh, as yeah. your perspective. And, and it seems like you should know their arguments bit. very well. Yeah. You should know the other side's arguments. Well, even if you don't agree with it, you should know their arguments like backwards and forwards. And mm. yeah. You're right. uh, and in terms of that data gathering process, you know, how, how do you balance that constant need in us to gather more information and more data before making some sort of a decision mm -hmm. while also understanding the fact that you can never really have enough data. There's not enough data in the world to give you 100% validation. 
Yeah. How do you balance that personally? That's tricky. And I always like, I always think of that quote, perfect is the enemy of good. You know, that Voltaire, mm. I think is attributed to and And so you can try to seek perfect information, but you'll never get enough to make a decision and you'll just be crippled by that. Right. And I see that all the time in business, you know, in every aspect of life, people making a business decision or whatever it is, you know, a release of a product or, you know, let's make it perfect, you know, fix every bug, you know, whatever before we were and. I think you and tweeted so, about Twitter Spaces. <laughs> yeah, that, Twitter Spaces. I feel like they're, <laughs> I feel like they're in that kind of mode right now. You know, sure. And the more established a company is, the more likely it's to fall prey to that. I think for some reason, you know, just more bureaucratic it becomes, and it's harder mm-hmm. to, to to be nimble and make mistakes. To, you know, um, so you know, I try to gather information as much as I can from a variety of data points, variety of perspectives. Um, but I know I'll never, I'll never have perfect information. And if I keep gathering information to, to the point where I'm not getting, I think where I'm not getting new, new perspectives, like the more I am searching for, you know, investment ideas on Tesla or some other stock or whatever, then if I get to a point where I'm not hearing anything new, any new idea generation that seems new to me over and over, and it's like the same things. And I'm trying to seek out different, both shorts and longs or speculators and skeptics, you know? Yeah. And um, then I feel like I've, I've done a good, a decent job where I've, I don't have perfect information. I know I'll never have this information out there that no one has, but I have a lot of the information out there that's available. It seems like. And so, you know, once I see myself running into the same type, you know, as long as I'm taking in a variety of viewpoints and focusing on that, if I'm seeing the same, bullet points and discussion points repeatedly after a while, then I feel like I've, I've achieved kind of like a saturation point where I should make that decision or, or not make a decision. Sometimes it's like, I don't have enough information. This doesn't sway me one way or another. I'm not going to buy or short, you know, buy this thing like that I was thinking about, you know, I'm just going to hold off until more information comes out. So, yeah. Yeah. And sometimes not acting is sometimes the best decision. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, not That's acting is, is is a tough decision almost. It's like the toughest, yeah. you know, sitting on your hands and the market's crashing like it is, you know, this week. And yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 tough sometimes. People people like to, uh, you know, they get their emotion. It's hard to remove your emotions. That's another thing. Like, you know, you want to – the fear of loss and the fear of missing out, the FOMO and the fear of loss. So, like, when the markets are going down, people want to sell. So, they're like, oh, I'm going to lose it all if it keeps going down or – Mm. when it's going up they're like oh, i'm gonna miss out if i don't buy the game stop at you know at five hundred dollars four hundred dollars it's gonna go with the moon and yeah. so you, these these emotions are very tricky in us and it's hard you just it's hard to remove them from the uh, decision tree but you also have to keep them in mind knowing that everyone else has these emotions so it's like charlie munger i guess was saying the psychology point you have to understand mass psychology and know that in the masses in the herd these emotions are playing a big role and you have to just step outside of that and figure out how to engage the right way with that. Do you think it's possible to develop that sense of uh, stoic resilience, particularly when things aren't going your way and to remain convicted? Or is that just something most people are, are, are born with? Or can you develop it? I mean... It's very tough to develop. I think we're born. I think we're born without it, and to develop it is very tough. Like, I was in a in, in interesting circumstances to kind of practice it. Where at my company, I had a, you know when I was doing sales at Interactive Brokers, I was doing very well, and I had a great job, and I was going to comp- I was rising in the ranks, and my career took off, and I had a great you know salary and everything. And there were strict rules that I couldn't place any trades during market hours. I had to wait till like an hour after the market closed or an hour before the market opened to place limit orders if I was going to make a trade in my, you know, it was very strict rules. And, and so, and I treated that job very seriously. It was more important to me than my investment kind of play money with Tesla for a while. Cause I was like, this is my job, my annuity for years to come that I can enjoy you know, Tesla, you know, it's done very well. I made a million bucks or a couple million or whatever, and it's down to a million, you know, done very well, but I can't retire on that with three kids, you know, so I'm just going to keep doing. So for, for years, I was kind of forced to sit on my hands and not trade when the market was selling off and Tesla was dropping 20 or 30% in a day on some, 
you know, Elon Musk tweet or whatever it was, it would just be very like, ah, I wish I could sell on the, you know, or I wish I could, if it was going up, I was like, I want to buy more. And so like for, like I had that restraint built in because I knew I'd probably pay a consequence of potentially losing my job if I'm trying to trade in the middle of the day, you know? Um, so it was kind of unique for me to have to go through that. It was like, you know, I don't think many people are in that situation where they're kind of forced not to react to yeah. the markets. Sure. Yeah. So it kind of, it was interesting for me to go through that to kind of develop a little bit of resistance to the uh, emotional aspect of trading. Sure, sure. Well, the current markets are obviously um, very fluctuated right now. But, you know, with with the amount of gains that you've had with Tesla, I'm curious to get your thoughts. Like, are you now, like, where do you see the next 10 to 100x opportunity? Is it still the, is it still that same framework that you're using of being able to look for those absolute insane gains? Or is it shift now? Because for you, with the amount of capital that you're working with, two to three X is, you know, is, is, is enough, you know, you don't have to necessarily go for that 100x gain. So, I, I guess the first one is like, how do you, how do you approach risk taking with, with that amount of capital now? And, um, where are you looking for that next 10 to hundred X opportunity? What are things that you see in the horizon? Yeah. So, you know, my risk taking has shifted. Obviously I don't have a job with an income. I have my, uh, so I'm trying to compartmentalize my own wealth into like a bucket of like safe money that I'm not really touching. It's more in, almost some cash or a very conservative type strategy. And then I have like my super speculative stuff in my IRA account that if it makes 10 X, there's no tax consequences because I've made money in my non-taxable account and paying the government millions of dollars is not fun. Just like it leaves a bad taste in your mouth, <laughs> but, but, but you have to do it. You know, you got to follow the rules obviously. Yeah. And, um, and then my, and then I have this like hedge fund I started and, and uh, I'm trying to practice my investment philosophy in the hedge fund with a number of different ideas, not just Tesla, um, but I'm trying to find like five or 10 ideas that I think could have like a, a huge, um, a huge future. So I try to look to the future and think like, okay, in three or five years, is this company's future super bright? Like, are they going to be like, talked about at the dinner table by everyone. And right now they're not, you know, are they going to be, is this going to take over some industry or open up a whole new industry like the metaverse or whatever, you know, is this going to be the forefront of that? Or, you know, so I try to think, I, I, I love the future. I love technology. You know, ever since I was a kid, I wanted to be the first to have the Reebok pumps, for example, you know, like any new technology, whether it's like a new shoe, like that has some cool, like pump in it or, you know, a new video game system when I was a kid to like, you know, new iPhone, Tesla, you know, yeah. Tesla, yeah, Starlink internet now or some mm. cool drone or something, you know, I want the new stuff, you know, I like that or it just fascinates me. And so I'm looking constantly on the lookout for that just for my own curiosity, what's the new thing? And if I can find a company that's like a pure play, like Microsoft, obviously, you know, is a big company, they have Minecraft, that's a big thing in the future, but Minecraft is just one component of a trillion dollar company, you know, it's sure, not sure. a good play. But Roblox, on the other hand, they're about to go public with a direct listing, you know, in March. And that's a pure play on the metaverse, you know, and maybe that's an interesting investment idea I've talked about before, you know. So so I just try to think of the future, like in the future, which of these companies is going to be like hard to not live with? And in what way, what, you know, what's our life going to be like? How much are people going to rely on? How could it make money? You know, I just am thinking of like how engrossed is our society going to be with that company twitter you know mm. it's gone up a lot we're all on twitter you know it's like once you get accustomed to twitter you can't give it up you know it's like a huge source of information um you know so so i'm just thinking about these companies and then you got to be aware of what competition could come in what competition could come in or is there a new technology that's coming in by another company that's going to make that technology and that company obsolete you know so you got to be aware of that like is Clubhouse going to make Twitter obsolete or something? You know, I don't think that's the case, but you know, people, right. you have to think about those cases, you know? Um, and so if you can find something that you can build conviction on that, like three or five years is going to be much bigger, you know, and you can find that pure play company, 
then maybe it's worth just studying that company more and more, the founder of the company, you know, the product and test it yourself, use it yourself, test the competition. And if it seems like all the pieces of the formula come into place where it's like, there's no competition anywhere near it, you know, the founder is incredible, you know, this industry is going to take off the stock market cap is at this, but I think in five years it should be 10 X higher Then that's like, that's this recipe for That's the recipe for finding that 10 X or make it a hundred X. If you can use the call options the right way. Right. 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 I guess it's easier said than done. We all want to find that, find that next Tesla or the next Bitcoin. Right. <laughs> exactly. And you got to keep in, yeah, you also have to keep in mind with the, the fluctuation of the macro markets, right? Like yeah. we could be going to interest rate change where, all these growth stocks are going to be valued at half the market cap what they were. And that's just like a new setting that it builds off of. It takes a couple of years to get back to where we were, you know, so if you're buying the call options on them now, then you're going to be, those are going to be worthless in two years, you know? Mm -hmm. So you got to be lucky with the macro market as well. If you're going to use the call options, that's why buying the stock is much safer on these types of opportunities. Sure. Sure. How do you assess like market temperature and whether it's, or do you care, do you not care about that? Do you, do you really just focus on the long term? Obviously, you've had that five hundred thousand going to thirty thousand, so you've been through this. Do, yeah. you, do you because of that, and because of the you know, in the end, you you had massive gains. Do you just kind of ignore that and and you look for the ten to hundred x gains and and assume that in five years, it's, none of it is really going to matter, and you just buy and hold? Uh, or do you now take into consideration of things a little bit more in terms of the market temperature and, and assessing that. Yeah. Yeah. Good question. So for stocks, like if it's a stock that I think is going to be 10 X in five years, where it is now, then, you know, I might not be as sensitive to where the macro market is now and just buy that stock. But if it's, if I'm trying to make money on the call options that are like one or two years out on a stock that I think is going to be much higher, then I want to pay attention to the macro market too and see if, you know, is the NASDAQ at all time highs right now? You know, mm. uh, did we just correct 10 or 20 percent? You know, is that a better time to buy the call options on that stock? You know, yes, it probably is. You know, but if I am trying to buy the call options when the market's ripping at all time highs, that's a lot more risky than just buying the stock at that point, you know, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, yeah. Got it. As a thought experiment, um, one thing I wanted to ask you is, you know, in 2021, if you were starting off, knowing all you know now, if you had 10K, you were starting with mm -hmm. 10K, let's say it in IRA, um, what are some of the things that you would do now? Obviously, Tesla is at a pretty big high because it's a yeah. big high, so those are off the table. What would you personally do if you just had 10K? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think... Uh, I'd probably try to keep like half of it in cash and then the other half I'd, tr you know, wait for the market to maybe see if it go goes down 20%, you know, if the NASDAQ goes down 20%, then start deploying that other cash and a combination of some stock and maybe a couple of call options on some opportunistic things. Um, but the first 5,000, yeah, I'd buy, uh, right now I'd probably buy some stock and, you know, I buy a couple shares of Tesla maybe, and then I'd buy like, you know, I'd save some cash for this Roblox IP direct listing or something. Um, and then maybe buy a couple of call options on a couple names that I think uh, are going to be uh, big winners, you know, uh, in the next couple of years, you know, um, big winners, meaning like, even if the company itself doesn't like quadruple revenues in one or two years, maybe it just like increases its revenues 50% or something, which is still pretty incredible. But and within one or two years, it'll be clear to the investment world that one or two years from then, it will quadruple the revenues, you know? So yeah. you almost have to look four years, you almost have to, you know, you almost have to think like, okay, I think stock XYZ, some startup car company is hardly producing any cars right now. And in two years, it'll produce, you know, a thousand cars. But in two years, it'll be clear that two years from then, it'll be producing 50,000 cars, you know? Right. Right. Then the people that are investing in it two years from now will value that differently than they do now, you know, and, and put a much higher multiple or whatever you want to call it. They'll just put a huge premium on it. And so if I can get it in, get in now, 
it'll be, it'll pay off in two years when people start realizing in two more years, it's going to be a huge company, you know? Sure. Sure. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, to shift gears a little bit, Emmett, I, I wanted to talk about, uh, you know, these things that are popping up like crazy now, which are NFTs. I know you have some opinions on this. Uh, they're called non-fungible tokens. Uh, yeah. and you know, you're seeing in the news now where a video of LeBron James dunking is selling for $200,000. I think Logan Paul, the, the YouTuber made like $3.5 million in one day selling his NFTs. It's yeah. insane. So, uh, I guess as an overview, what are non-fungible tokens for people that aren't aware? And what are your yeah. overall feelings about this market? Yeah. I think non-fungible tokens or NFTs, they're like, um, it's like a unique digital signature on something in the digital world, you know, that can't be reproduced. Like maybe you could take a picture of it, but it's not going to have the same digital signature as the file that you have for that, for that digital picture or whatever, you know? Yeah. Um, so it, it proves that you technically have like the ownership rights in this NFT world for that digital item, you know? And it's widely accepted in the digital spectrum as that, you know? And so um, it's interesting. It's like digital art or digital collectibles, you know, and that's how it's being kind of marketed, you know? And uh, I kind of see it. Uh, do you remember the, in, the uh, initial coin offerings ICOs of 2017? There was like a big mm. craze, you know, the last time Bitcoin was running up, there was all these other new coins coming out, like, and every day there's like a new white paper of a new coin being created by people and venture capital firms were buying it all up and people were making lots of money. And, you know, that was like a crazy frenzy that petered out pretty quickly. So I think this is similar, but just in a different wrapper. Okay. Hmm. Some of those ICOs maybe survived and are worth something like Cardano. I don't know when that started or, you know, Ethereum started obviously earlier than that, but like that, you know, there's some, coins that maybe they came out in 2017 and the 16 and these initial coin offerings that are still around today for good reason and have been adopted but yeah. the vast vast majority 99 percent have become worthless you know and so i think same thing with these nfts um you know it's sort of like uh there's a big craze of fear of missing out so everyone's jumping in to try to own something some digital art but because it's it's like a finite scarce resource you know it's scarcity in the digital world you know yeah. and um the only problem is there's a there can be an unlimited amount of scarce things created it's kind of ironic it's like <laughs> it's like a, a conundrum or something like you can keep creating more and more scarce like this podcast can put an nft on it and be like i'm selling the nft to this podcast or the you can put an nft on every one minute clip of this podcast and sell them sure. all you know yeah there's only been one of those available for people to buy but you can create an infinite amount of these NFTs on anything. They each are unique in their own right, right? And they're going to be heavily marketed as being why this NFT is better. And it's just a big, like, craze rush right now for any and all NFTs of any anyone who claims an artist, anyone who is an artist, you know. Um, and some of them will stick, I think. You know, 1% will stick and be... Um, you know, maybe it's the NBA top shots and crypto kitties by Dapper Labs. I don't know. Maybe it's something else. These, you know, cyber cipher punks or whatever, you know, yeah. but I, I, I think the vast, vast majority of this stuff is going to become worthless. And, uh, I think people just have to be careful. I, you know, that's my opinion. I, I don't think they can all be, it, it just, anyone who can come up with an idea is going to be trying to market this, their own NFT idea. Right. And why sure. wouldn't you? Right. It's like, I want to make money too, you know? So I guess the idea, like from an economical perspective is that when you're looking at supply and demand, you're saying because anyone at any time for anything can create these NFTs and put a to and tokenize it. Yeah. There's scarcity yeah. in, in, in like this one specific aspect, but because anyone can create these, you're saying the supply will just overflow and it won't yeah. necessarily match the demand that people will have. Yeah. Yeah, the supply of the supplies will be infinite. <laughs> supply of the supplies. <laughs> that's yeah, that's a good way to put yeah. it. The supply of the supplies. That's the way to put it. Yeah, yeah. The supply yeah. of the scarce supplies. Yeah, will be infinite. 
Yeah, like I, I obviously like the the use cases are interesting, right? There's like I've I've heard use cases for like ticketing, uh, real estate, obviously like physical art. Um, yeah, if you can link it to the physical world, I think there's a good case for that. You know, a good function for that. Yeah, like the only thing I could see makes sense. I don't know if you played like Diablo or like or, or Fortnite. You know, Diablo is probably the yeah, old yeah. school for maybe yeah. the older generation, but like yeah. that's the only thing where it makes sense like vi- virtual games where man like to to have like the 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 next generation sword because you 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 went to this quest or this like skin armor yeah. or like those those are things yeah. that people would actually invest money for and some money i think so yeah. i think when it's centralized ironically when it's in a centralized system within the internet so when it's in the centralized metaverse of fortnite or roblox mm. then you'll have the it'll be more it'll make more sense it'll be that'll stick around longer term mm. um but yeah when you have it just in the open source internet that anyone create of any type of thing it's kind of it's just it's too much yeah. right and i guess it, it would depend on kind of the influx and and how fast the adoption rates for ar and vr would be and how good that technology could be. Like imagine all of us kind of living in, in these virtual worlds. Then I guess I could see like NFTs becoming a bigger thing. So it, it, do you see yeah. like there could be like a correlation in, in some aspect? Yeah, I think it has to be like, if we're all going to be in the metaverse or virtual world, it has to be like a centralized system of some sort, you know, like mm-hmm. Roblox or Fortnite or Minecraft, you know, something like that like we all have to be in this one centralized environment that has some kind of oversight to control it right and yeah. that oversight to control that environment itself that we're all within then has some kind of you know um control on what uh nfts are legitimate or not you know um and so you can't just create any nft and bring it into Fortnite. you know yeah yeah yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting world. It's uh, yeah. I'm excited to see how it all how it all plays through. But I guess we won't see yeah. an Emmet NFT anytime anytime <laughs> soon <laughs> until this craze dies, no. dies down at least. No, yeah, no, no, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, I mean, I just keep thinking about my kids and what a different world they're growing up in. Yeah, that, that keeps me motivated to kind of think about the future, you know. And uh, it's just like I know they're never they're never going to drive a car. It makes me feel safer, you know. Mm-hmm. Like I know you know, it'll be self driving cars all the way for them by the time they're fifteen or sixteen or seventeen, you know. So there's lots of things that are changing. Sure, yeah, and in some ways you have like this leg up because you can see the trends and what your kids are are doing and what they're yeah. playing around with and what their habits are, what their friends are looking at. So it, it, you, yeah. I guess you can kind of really see into the future twenty years down the road of, of what's going to happen. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, so I, I want to leave with this one question. Uh, sure. You know, if you were to look back to your 25-year-old self, like what, what are some of the advice? Like what, what's one piece of advice looking back that mm-hmm. you would give yourself? I think 25 is kind of like our target demographic age. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So if I'm 25, I'd want to like number one, I'd want to have some kind of like five-year plan for myself. Like, okay, in five years, where do I want to be? You know, just, I don't necessarily have to know how to get there, but I just have to have one, have some idea of where I'd like to be. It doesn't have to be the only idea, but just some idea that I can envision. Because when I was 25, I'm not sure I had that. Some, sometimes I did, but sometimes I didn't. And just helps to have, you know, feel like you have some control of the future. Like you have some thought on what the future could hold if you play your cards right, for example. Um, and then number two, um, if I haven't, you know, I think when I was 25, I had started experimenting with investing, but maybe not in the right way, but I, I did. But I think most 25 year olds, they should be experimenting with investing their own money uh, by that point. You know, like they should have their own savings plans, hopefully in place um, with maybe they have an employer that helps them or if they're employing themselves, they just have their own little IRA account to the side. They put in like index an index fund or something that's kind of like, they're not messing with that, but then they have like, they separate a separate bucket of money themselves. Maybe it's in like a Robinhood account or a cash app account or something like that, that they can experiment. They could buy maybe a couple of cryptocurrencies with, they can buy 
a couple stocks with it, maybe try a call option here or there, you know, but also don't put all your eggs in one basket on experimental money, you know, and, and don't, you know, make sure that you keep it separate and they don't try to like borrow money from this bucket of money to put in that bucket of money when you run out, you know? Sure. Um, so those would be my two things because you learn, I learned from experience. Like I, it was like Confucius saying, it's like, I forget what I hear. I remember what I see, but I learn what I do. Mm. And so if you do it, you'll learn it. If you just listen to me and you talking, that's helpful, but you're not going to learn it. You're not going to learn anything until you actually do it and experience it. You know? Yeah. That's, my that's view. powerful. That's powerful. Yeah. Well, powerful would end it. Uh, yeah. Emmett, thanks so much for, for making the time. Um, really, really appreciate it. There was, uh, so many things that I wanted to also go into. So we'd love to have you back and do a round two sure. on this. Where can, uh, where can people learn more about you? I know you've got your, your hedge fund now, the good soil investment. We'll, we'll link all those down. Uh, where else can people learn more about you? Yeah, just on Twitter, they can look up my name. It's just Emmett Peppers at Yahoo. I mean, sorry, sorry, Emmett Peppers yeah. Emmett Peppers on Twitter. I'm not trying to get yeah. away from personal email address there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and then um, the uh, on the website, you know, GoodSoilInvestment.com. But yeah, I mean, that's uh, that's different. But yeah, I think just on Twitter, you can follow me. I, I, my DMs are always open. I try to get to DMs as much as I can. Some people message me. It takes a couple of days, but I try to respond to everyone i can oh that's very nice of you wow yeah i'm still at that phase I, it's funny i have a story with elon musk in 2013 when i first got my model s it was the greatest car and after like two or three weeks it broke down and i was one of the first owners in the northeast to get it so i knew there was not much support as an early adopter and i knew that but then after like a week or two of getting the runaround of them like not getting the part i was like what do people do at my company when they can't get help they email the founder and i guessed elon's email mm. address and and he responded in like an hour and like no wrote way. me like my stuff back. Yeah, it was awesome. It was before he was uber famous in 2013, you know, and um, he was still well what known, he, but not like. What did he say? Back. How did he? I guess it was like, like thoughtful, to... like thanks for supporting the mission and the car. We're going to get a, you know, well, before he responded to me, someone called me from like the Queens, New York service center had like the only service center within like 50 miles or 100 miles of me in Connecticut at the time. He's like, yeah, we're sending a tow truck up tonight to get your car. We're going to bring it down to our shop tonight and switch it out with the part with the car in our shop and bring it back to you tomorrow. It'll be all fixed. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> so my email worked. And then he emailed, Elon emailed me like a half hour later just saying like, yeah, I really appreciate your support. And he's very thoughtful, like built my conviction wow. even more that this founder really cares. And he's like, you know, so uh, you know, once you get to it, but that was before, you know, once he got a little more famous, I tried emailing him again later, like something random and it went to like an auto email, like of course, <laughs> of course, yeah, yeah. So, so I don't know if I'll ever get that way, but for now I'm definitely accessible Yeah, for now. But if I ever got to be like really like famous, which I, I don't think I will, but then it would be like a point where you can't respond to everything. You never know. You never know. Once you hit that uh, billion dollar mark, which I'm sure you will see. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that. That's, that's possible, but un unlikely. Yeah. yeah. Well, I really we'll appreciate see. you coming on. Uh, fascinating story to end that as well with Elon Musk. Yeah. Um, yeah. Definitely go follow thanks. Emmett, guys. And, uh, and thanks for coming on. All right. Thanks, Sean. Good chatting with you. Thanks for making it all the way to the end of the show. Hope you really enjoyed our guest today and that you took one thing valuable from our conversation. If you haven't already, I would love it if you could leave a quick rating or review on whichever network you're listening to the show and share this episode with one friend if you found it valuable. And if it's something that a friend, a family member, or just someone that you care about could find a little bit of insight from what you learned today. All right. Ciao.